The passage we'll be looking at tonight is 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 to 15. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, This boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So, it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Um, thank you, Sikhan, for reading the passage for us. Um, if I've not met you before, my name's Adam. I'm on the staff team here at church. Um, and to echo Robin's welcome from earlier, a really warm welcome to Chalmers this evening. Uh, the passage we're going to be looking at this evening, the one Sikhan just read for us, contains some of the strongest, most direct words against false teachers in the whole Bible. In the last verse, you might have noticed, Paul goes as far as to call these people servants of Satan, if you wouldn't be a regular ranch Chalmers and you're wondering what on earth you've walked into, um, well, here, our practice here is to work through books of the Bible sequentially because that's how we hear God speak to us. Um, and so we're thinking about false teaching this evening, um, not because that's a personal hobby horse of mine. Um, I'll admit this wouldn't have been my first choice of topic. Um, but this is where we're up to in our series in 2 Corinthians. Um, and because we believe the Bible is God's words, we don't fast forward over the uncomfortable bits. 
Um, So to that end, there will be two things that will be really helpful. Um, Firstly, please keep the passage open in front of you, um, whether that's in a Bible or on your phone. That way you can check that what I'm saying um, aren't my opinions, um, but actually what the passage and therefore the living God is saying to us. And secondly, let me lead us in a prayer for God's help. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please give us all humble hearts before your word this evening. I pray that you would help me to speak clearly and faithfully to your words. I pray that your voice would be heard. Please encourage us where we need encouraged, challenge us where we need challenged, and humble us before ye. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin, let's go back and read uh, some of those fiery closing verses from the end of our passage. I'm picking up at verse 13. Let's have a look there together. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Um, I'm training for ministry, which means I'm starting to get into the business of reference writing. Um, But imagine if I wrote these words on a reference for a summer camp. False, deceitful, servant of Satan. It's shocking language. And if you are one of the people I've written a reference for recently, and please don't worry, I didn't write that about you. These are some of the strongest, most damning words about anyone you'll find in the Bible. I don't know if anyone used to watch the TV show Cowboy Builders. And basically the idea was that people would call into the show about tradespeople they'd been scammed by. And then the show would come and try and help the victims um, and expose the fraudsters to the authorities. Cowboy Builders are, to use the language of verse 13, deceitful workmen. They would offer uh, offer you their services to fit you a new kitchen... Um, And then they'd go to work, everything would seem okay at first, until one day um, they'd leave you with a kitchen left like a building site, and they'd skip time with your money. They'd con you into giving all of your money up front, and in return they leave you a ruin. I don't know if anyone here has ever been a victim of that sort of thing, Um, but if you have been, I'm sure it would have hurt. And when we talk about these fraudsters, people use pretty strong and colourful language, I mean, you can understand that. They've been cheated, lied to, robbed, and exploited. Back to our passage, Paul uses the strongest language he can against his opponents. The strength of Paul's words tells us just how serious an issue we're dealing with tonight. Just how high the stakes are. But as ruinous as having no kitchen and being thousands of pounds out of pocket can be, Paul's deceitful workmen, the ones we'll be thinking about tonight, leave people in a much more serious, long-lasting predicament. In fact, with these deceitful workmen we're thinking about tonight, the stakes are eternal. So we'll think more about this in our first point. That's the one um, in the box on the handouts on the back of the service sheets um, you'd have been handed on your way in. Um, So uh, here's the first point. A betrothal on the line as someone else starts to catch the bride's eye. Let me read those verses for us again. Verses 1 to 4. 
I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Um, In these verses, Paul is uh, telling a story. Um, So let's get that clear first. In this scenario, Paul presents himself as a father. He's betrothed his daughter, that's the Corinthians, to Jesus. But this father is in anguish because now his daughter's gaze is starting to drift away from her betrothed towards someone else. He's no good for her. And the question is, will she remain faithful to her betrothed or will she abandon him for this other guy? And it goes without saying, this is an extremely emotive image that Paul chooses. Um, I mean, if he wanted to show that what we were talking about was serious, he could have gone down the route of life and death. He could have said, if you abandon Jesus, you'll forfeit your forgiveness, you'll face his judgments unforgiven, you'll have to pay for your own sins. He could have said that. And while that's true, that's not the idea he chooses here. Paul deliberately chooses to frame this issue in terms of a painful image of marital unfaithfulness. And I'm sure there will be some of us here who know personally the destructiveness and heartache of this kind of situation from either side. I think for anyone, this language packs a punch. But if this is close to home for you, then the stakes are so clear. To turn away from the true Jesus to use the language of verse 4 to another Jesus, is equal to a complete relational breakdown. It severs you from the real Jesus. To go after a Jesus that false teachers put forwards is infidelity. We'll say more about this when we get there in our final points. Um, But now I want us to notice, um, just at the beginning, the subtlety of false teaching. Let me read verse 4 again and have a look down there with me. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus from the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put put up with it readily enough. So these false teachers aren't offering something that would sound completely alien I mean, people just wouldn't fall for that, would they? Notice the language they use. Jesus, spirit, gospel. They sound legit. They're using the same terms. That's part of what makes it so dangerous. We know not everything with the label Jesus or gospel is the genuine article. While the labels might be the same, the contents, what's actually in the bottle is completely different. Um, And I take it this is unpopular in a culture where it's offensive um, to disagree. But to lump everything 
that takes the name Jesus in the same buckets. That's just a lie. I guess most of us um, might remember the horse meat scandal from a few years ago. People remember that. Um, People were selling food products labelled beef, but containing part or sometimes entirely horse meat. Likewise, false teachers sell what they call Jesus, but actually it's a fake. And if in the next few years you'll be moving house and choosing a new church beyond Chalmers, well, I take it Paul would say just going somewhere that knows the right terminology, um, somewhere that mentions Jesus' name, talks about believing the gospel and sharing the gospel, I take it Paul would say that just isn't enough. What are they saying about Jesus? What are they saying about the gospel? Are you getting the real Jesus or a worthless, dangerous fake? Will this church help you to grow towards a sincere and pure devotion to the real Jesus, who one day, as we were singing about, will get to see face to face? Or will it seduce you away from him towards a fake? Um, I want to pause there for a second because I don't want to give the impression that false teaching is only an issue that exists out there um, in the world, not in here. Um, The New Testament just doesn't allow us to think like that. It doesn't allow us to think any one church could be immune from teaching a false Jesus. And to give a New Testament example, the church in Ephesus was one of the strongest. But in Acts 20, Paul warns them of wolves, that's false teachers, arising from among them, not just from outside. And tragically, 1 and 2 Timothy, later on in the Bible, confirmed this actually happens. Um, Church history also uh, teaches us a sobering lesson that even the strongest Bible-explaining, Jesus-proclaiming churches like we've been hearing about in 2 Corinthians, even the strongest ones go astray. How many of those strong Reformation period churches are still proclaiming the true Jesus today? And all that's to say, as we teach on a passage um, here at Chalmers about false teaching, we are not standing six feet above contradiction. We're not here to point the finger while claiming we could never fall foul ourselves. We actually discussed this at our our sermon prep meeting and this Wednesday, Um, and I'm sure none of the preaching team who were there would mind me saying this, that we need you to hold us accountable for what we're teaching from the Bible. In fact, even the Apostle Paul, um, not in 2 Corinthians but elsewhere in the New Testament, puts himself on the line Um, You might want to look up Galatians chapter 1, verse 8 later, if you get a chance. So let's not fall into the dangerous pattern of thinking that false teaching could only exist out there. Um, So earlier we were thinking, why Paul uses such an emotive picture to talk about the danger of false teaching? Um, We saw it, it shows us just how high the stakes are. Following a false teacher towards a false Jesus would be to abandon the one we're to marry, to throw away our invitation to the joyful marriage supper of the Lamb, to abandon an eternity in the presence of our loving God. And so that's one reason. But I take it there is another reason for the language of betrothal and infidelity in this passage. 
Um, And to help us see that, let me read verse 3 again. So please have a look down there. Verse 3. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Um, so before later on, we'll, we'll get on to the people um, we saw um, Paul labels as servants of Satan. Before we get there, we go right back to the beginning of the Bible story and Satan himself. And that's the serpent in, in verse 3. Paul takes us back to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve lived in loving relationship with God, a place where God and humanity walked together, a place rich with blessing and joy. Humanity could really not have had it any better than to be with God. And yet the serpent came along and deceived Eve to eat the fruit that God commanded people not to eat. We're told this in Genesis 3, verse 6. Um, No no need to flick there, but I'll, I'll read it for us. This is Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Um, We won't go into detail, but just one thing to spot from that verse. Notice the language of desire. The woman saw the tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. It was to be desired to make one wise. See, the path towards severing our relationship with God is one that looks desirable. Likewise, in Paul's picture of infidelity, there's desire it won't necessarily feel wrong in the moments. It could even feel exciting. The point this is making is that abandoning the true Jesus for a fake will feel good at the time. It might feel liberating. Moving on to a Jesus without the uncomfortable bits, a Jesus that sits in complete harmony with the world around, a Jesus that doesn't lead to being an outsider, a Jesus who lets me live how I want. Abandoning the true Jesus will feel good at the time, but Paul says this would be a tragedy. To use the language of the passage for Paul, it would be like a father watching his daughter turn her back on the man she was to marry for someone else who we all know is no good for her. So that's the end of our first point, verses 1 to 4. Um, But before we move on, I want to pause, and this will be extremely brief, um, and just note this wonderful truth, um, that if we're trusting Jesus, we're betrothed to him. That means we have a relationship with him. We have a relationship with him now, and we look forward to life with him in eternity, and the closest, most intimate relationship. We look forward to having the intimacy with God that humans enjoyed back in the Garden of Eden, before it all went wrong. And that will all be in a perfect new creation, with no pain, sickness, or death. And already, what great incentive to stick with the true Jesus. And so that's the end of of the first point, which um, is really kind of setting up and framing the rest of the passage. Um, So we've seen that Christians are betrothed to Jesus, uh, and there is a risk of infidelity by going after a false one. And so from here, um, the rest of the time is going to be looking at two ways Paul gives us to avoid going.
going astray? How do we avoid having our head turned by a destructive fake? Um, so there's two ways. Um, they're numbered one and two on the handouts. Here's the first. Stick with the Apostle Paul's ministry, which is filled with truth and love. And so we're looking at verses 5 to 11 here. Let me read those for us again. Um, verse 5 to 11, and um, page 969 on the Church Bibles. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin by humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my needs. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. Um, If you were here last week, you might remember that Paul was uh, defending himself against attacks from his opponents. Um, We're in the final section of 2 Corinthians, um, where Paul is sort of going head-to-head with a group he calls um, the super-apostles, here in verse 5. Why super-apostles? I take it that's because they looked more impressive than Paul, and more engaging speakers, less suffering, more prosperity, Um, clearly in stark contrast to Paul if you've been with us for the rest of the book. Um, Last week we saw Paul face criticism that he was a coward, and he wrote strong letters from a distance but in person was weak and passive. Um, A sort of first-century keyboard warrior, if you will. Um, He wasn't, um, and if you missed last week, I'd encourage you to catch up with the recording if you get a chance. Um, This week, we found out the super-apostles were criticizing Paul's lack of skill in speaking, and they were calling his love for the Corinthians into question. So we'll start with the speaking, and then we'll, we'll deal with love. So first, speaking. Um, Listen to the way Paul defends himself. Um, Verse 6. Even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I'm not so in knowledge. That's an interesting response. The accusation comes that Paul isn't a particularly eloquent or engaging speaker. But instead of sending back some of his sermon recordings, uh, Paul alters the playing fields. See, he just isn't that concerned with um, his public speaking skills. Much more important, he says, is the content of what he's saying. Even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I'm not so in knowledge. And by contrast, I take it the super apostles would have been really entertaining to listen to. Um, Their sermons would have been chock full of gripping illustrations, uh, clever rhetoric, funny jokes, and so on. Um, But the content would have been empty. Corinthian culture valued all of these things really highly. Um, But Paul's CV has got public speaking at the bottom and if it was even on there at all, um, and if they had CVs back then, and at the top, faithfulness to Jesus and truthfulness. That's what matters most. What matters is whether the message is truthful, whether it points to the true Jesus, not a false one, whether it helps people grow in their pure devotion to Jesus. Um, And as for them, so for us, um, we love engaging speakers, we love to be entertained, But let's not be drawn in by a good speaker. He won't give you the real Jesus. 
It's worth saying this doesn't mean preachers shouldn't put any effort into making their sermons engaging and easy to listen to. In fact, that's a really good thing. We should aim at being understandable and engaging um, and showing Jesus as clearly as we possibly can, removing any kind of barriers. I also realize that is a risky thing to say when you're halfway through a talk. Um, when it comes down to it, if, if you were faced with a choice between an exciting, vibrant church where the talks are a treat for the ears, but where the true Jesus is sidelined, if you had a choice between that church and one where the Bible is taught faithfully and the true Jesus is proclaimed, even if it's sometimes a bit clunky and boring, going where the truth is taught wins out every time. This is what will grow you in your devotion to the true Jesus. Um, so that's uh, speaking, that's um, kind of Paul's first defense. Um, now let's think about his second. Um, so this is about his love for the Corinthians. That's what's under fire here, his love for the Corinthians. Um, this one's got a bit of a backstory. Um, so let me quickly fill us in on the situation. Um, verse 7, here's the problem. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. Yes, that really is the issue. And um, Paul preached the gospel to the Corinthians free of charge. And they thought that meant he didn't love them. As a traveling preacher, Paul needed money to support his living expenses. Um, but in Corinth, he decides not to burden them financially while he worked there. Um, instead, we're told um, his money came in verse 5 from um, help from the church in Macedonia. And perhaps the super apostles were telling the Corinthians that um, this means Paul doesn't think they're genuine or that he doesn't want to be that closely associated with them. Um, I don't think we're really told exactly what the logic is. Um, But what's clear is this. Paul decides not to burden the Corinthians, and yet they see this as a sign that they've been treated with less favor. They doubt his love for them. I mean, clearly there's nothing in this objection. And Paul affirms his love for the Corinthians, as he has been doing through the, through the whole book in verse 11. And why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. And of course, we know this too, and even from this passage. Remember back to verse 2. And Paul, the jealous father of the brides, he longs for the Corinthians to stay true to the Lord Jesus. So to the person who sees Paul as a cold, impersonal theologian, well, I think this passage would be a great place to go, wouldn't it? See his pastoral warmth and genuine love on display. And that genuine love, combined with speaking the truth, is exactly the kind of ministry we all need to be under. A ministry, as chapter 6 describes it, as uh, one of genuine love, truthful speech. If you want to look up later, that's chapter 6, verse 6. Um, So here are two of the most important questions to ask of someone in ministry. Do they love people? Do they speak the truth about Jesus? And it's it's now time to move on to our final point this evening. Um, So Paul has shown us uh, the thing that we should be looking for, ministry characterized by speaking the truth and genuine love. And so now he goes on from kind of showing them what you, what you should look for to what you should avoid. And this is the bit where Paul turns up the temperature a few degrees. And so if you've zoned out, um, this might bring you back. Here's our final point. Um, it's number two on the, on the handouts. But where super-Christian ministry, which disguises itself as the real thing, but is actually a Satan-serving fake. 
verses 12 to 15. Let me read those for us again, and let's all have a look down at them. And what I do, I will continue to do, in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their ends will correspond to their deeds. These are some of the fieriest verses in the New Testament um, against false teaching. But let's not think Paul was just an angry and bitter man. He had something to get off his chest. Remember, he's the loving father. He longs for the church. He cares for to be purely devoted to Christ. His ministry, the basic Bible-explaining, Jesus-proclaiming ministry we've been thinking about all the way through 2 Corinthians, is what creates devotion to Jesus. But now there are people in town falsely claiming to be doing the same thing. Look again at verse 12. What I do, I'll continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. These people are claiming to be authentic, but it's a lie. And to go along with them would be a disaster. Paul knows that, and he loves the church, so he exposes their deception. Unless we think this is just Paul being a little bit hot-headed, Remember, the Lord Jesus himself was not afraid to associate his opponents with Satan. Um, here's another one you can maybe look up later. John 8, 44, he calls his opponents sons of the devil. Um, so we don't have much time. So I think the biggest thing to notice about false teachers from these verses is that they come in disguise. That word crops up there three times. Verse 13, uh, disguising themselves. Verse 14, as Satan disguises himself. Verse 15, his servants disguise themselves. And we've all seen the, the, the kind of devil Halloween costumes. You know the one I mean? Um, bright red suit, pitchfork, um, pointy tail, horns. Uh, or in films and TV, the kind of evil-looking red monster. Um, but that is just not the Bible's picture. Um, Not at all. Look with me again at verse 14. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. We're not talking about a cartoon villain. The evil one doesn't look evil. That would just be too obvious. No one would fall for it. His tactics are to deceive. He makes turning from God look attractive, like he did right at the beginning in the Garden of Eden. And as with the devil, so with his servants. Let me read verse 15 again. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Um, Probably won't come as a surprise. False teachers never claim to be false teachers. That's not how they advertise themselves. Um, But I wonder if it is possible for us to fall into the trap of thinking that we could never be taken in by one. Many of us here have probably learned to be suspicious of the shiny, seat, shiny teeth, mega church, private jet kind of Bible teacher that you might see on TV. 
Um, I'm sure many of us could uh, name a few of the famous prosperity gospel preachers from our blacklist. People who sell a Jesus who will give you health, wealth, and success in this life. Um, I hope we know that is a fake Jesus and that this kind of teaching would sever us from our relationship with the true Christ. Um, But I think there is a risk of complacency when it comes to false teaching. I think there's a risk, and I have to admit, this comes from personal testimony, that I think we can think false teaching isn't something uh, that would ever come close to home for us, let alone something we would ever actually fall for. Um, And can I be, be, be bold and suggest if any of you are in that category with me, we need to wake up. The big thing Paul says about false teachers in this passage is that they blend in. They disguise themselves as the real thing. They claim to work on the same terms. They claim to be all about our righteousness, serving Christ. If you were to go onto the church website of one of these so-called super apostles, it wouldn't be immediately obvious that they were dangerous or that they weren't orthodox. You might see a mission statement along the lines of making disciples of Jesus Christ, living in righteousness, or maybe something a bit more catchy. And there is a reason no one pays me to do publicity for them. On the tin, it looks like they're all about Jesus. But when you scratch beneath the surface, you'll find a fake. Perhaps a Jesus who's less picky about morality, a Jesus who wants you to live your best life now, A Jesus who keeps you from suffering and evil in this life. A Jesus who isn't costly to follow. An inoffensive Jesus. Remember, it's appealing, it's desirable. Slick social media and website, great music, entertaining speakers, lots of people at our stage of life. Um, And don't get me wrong, these aren't necessarily bad things. But they can be the, the reason that we're drawn to a particular church even if that church turns out to be presenting a false Jesus. Or perhaps um, picture a church not unlike Chalmers, a church that claims to be all about teaching the Bible, but what's being said from the front and what the Bible actually says are two very different things. And that's the reason, by the way, you'll often hear um, at the start of a sermon something along the lines of, um, please keep your Bibles open, Um, It can sound like a bit of a formality, but we really do mean it. If the Jesus we're proclaiming from the front isn't the Jesus we meet in the pages of Scripture, then that is a big problem. And if it wouldn't be your normal habit to have an open Bible in front of you um, as you listen to sermons, can I encourage you to think about doing that from now on? The stakes are so high. It's important for all of us to learn to develop a discerning antenna about what we hear. Um, And incidentally, that's part of the reason we have small groups, or we study the Bible closely together in groups. I hope this passage has begun to show us that the stakes are high. We aim not to be a church that is merely claiming, as verse 12 puts it, to work on the same terms as Paul, as an authentic uh, authentic, um, ministry We never want to just pay lip service to Bible Bible explaining, true Jesus proclaiming ministry. 
we need to be doing it and keep doing it because that's what's going to produce a sincere and pure devotion to the Lord Jesus. Anything else would lead us away from him. I don't doubt there will be some here this evening who know the pain of seeing loved ones in a church where they're being fed a fake Jesus. We long and pray for them to be under a ministry like Paul's that teaches the truth in love. This passage is sobering. It does say this kind of thing is serious. The stakes are high. And if for any reason ye, um, sitting here this evening, um, could be tempted to have your head turned towards another Jesus, perhaps uh, one, um, a church whose Jesus is, is less picky on morality or what we get up to in our free time or who to start a relationship with or a Jesus who's less costly to follow, if that is a temptation for you, please speak to someone. Speak to your small group leader or a Christian friend you trust. Or, or come at the front at the end, and there'd be people he'd, he'd love to pray with you. Just as we finish, let me summarize uh, and try to bring a bit of clarity to what we've seen. And so remember, we started with this beautiful picture of a betrothal. If we're Christians, we are betrothed to the true Jesus, and our aim is to be purely devoted to him. True ministry... Um, like we've been seeing all the way through 2 Corinthians, true ministry like Paul's, filled with truth and love, simple Bible-explaining, Jesus-proclaiming ministry, this is the kind of ministry that will produce pure devotion to the Lord. But we saw also that that beautiful family picture is under threat. False teachers could seduce people away from the true Jesus towards a fake. False teachers who pretend to be the real thing he make chasing after a fake Jesus look attractive, but who are really serving Satan, the deceiver. The words of this passage are strong and sobering. And so as we finish, I'll pray, um, pray for all of us here involved in teaching the Bible here at Jamras, whether that's up front on a Sunday, in small groups, children's groups, reading one-to-one, or any other context. I pray that God will help us to keep giving people the true Jesus. And I'll pray for all of us that we'll grow towards a sincere and pure devotion to him. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, the words of this passage are strong and challenging. The stakes are high. I pray for all of us involved in teaching the Bible that in your grace you would keep us always proclaiming the true Jesus. I pray that the fruits of our ministry would be that both we ourselves and those we teach would be purely and sincerely devoted to our Lord Jesus. I praise you that we will one day meet him face to face as his brides and for the joy that will bring. Father, for any of us who might be tempted away from the Jesus of the Bible for any reason, I ask that you would help us to see the danger of that. I pray for each one of us that we would all stick with the Jesus proclaimed by the apostles, knowing that there is no other one. Please be applying the words of this passage to all of our hearts by your Holy Spirit. 
We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.